You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Welcome, everyone. We are live for episode four of ShipBob's Moving Your Business Forward web series. Uh, We have a fantastic panel uh, ahead for today's conversation. We have uh, Matt DiCapio, the COO of Bowie USA, as well as Mark, pardon me, Mark, uh, last name, I can be able to pronounce this correctly, but (laughs) we logistics manager, um, Backblade, uh, as well as Sarah Ribner, the CEO and co-founder of Piper Y. And for if anyone is just joining us for today for the first time, this is a pretty interactive session. So Casey's going to be going in around our CMO of ShipBob, uh, asking all of our e-commerce brands, you know, co-founders, logistics managers, CEOs, questions that you guys have already submitted prior in the landing page. And then also, if you have questions here in the chat box, you know, feel free to shoot them over, you know, to any of us. They'll be able to see it in live and, you know, try to keep this a pretty organic discussion for the next 57 or so minutes. And, you know, we really hope you guys can get, you know, a lot of value out of this. You know, we're going on four weeks here. So has some really great responses uh, so far. So. Okay, so I'm going to kind of let you take it away from here, and I'll just be in the background trying to entice everyone to try to hop up on screen too. So, Perfect. Thank you, Nick. I'll just reiterate a few points where this is interactive. I've got a bunch of questions. We've got a bunch of questions from people that signed up in advance, but this is to help everybody who's in attendance here. And one of the things that I've loved about this uh, live storm, which we're using here, that's so fun is uh, like Mark, for example, who's now up here talking to everybody here, ha- was asking questions and, and throwing in answers as well to some of the questions over the last couple of weeks. So whether it's in the chat or the questions, uh, feel free to chime in. And if for any of you who were on here last week, we, we can actually pull people on stage as well. So that's pretty fun. Nick did the intros for me, but uh, Sarah, Mark, Matt, thank you very much for joining us here. We've got Mark here in from Chicago and Matt and Sarah from New York. Where are you, Nick? Boston-ish area, and Boston-ish in between. So I just and then I'm, I'm here in SoCal. So we're we're all spread out. So packed house. Usually we only have about two brands. Um, here we've got three. So this will be nice and fun. So I'm just going to jump on in. Sarah wanted to start with you, and uh, Nick highlighted some of the changes that you guys made in in one of the emails earlier this week. So would love to hear how you guys pivoted so quickly into hand gels from what you guys often sell, which are, you know, natural deodorants uh, primarily for women. And how are you able to produce them quickly and start selling? So actually at the end of last year, we had a hand gel recipe. So we didn't anticipate that, obviously we had no idea any of this was gonna come up and we had part of the recipe done, but we didn't really have the final recipe. We didn't have a launch date for it. And when this started to happen, a lot of our team members were making their own hand gels. And we said, well, you know, if we already have part of the recipe, why don't we go back to the lab, come up with something that meets the CDC requirements? We can sell it because we have the stock, we have things on hand that we can um, kind of recycle into a new formula. And then we went back to the lab, we were able to get it together. It was the fastest product launch I think we've ever done. And then we had an organization we wanted to work with in Brooklyn, which is where we're based. So part of the profits are going to donate meals, and we're also donating. one hand gel for every order. And yeah, it was the fastest that we've ever launched something. And it's um, 
it's actually pretty similar to one of our other formulas that some people at the beginning of the outbreak were asking, can we use, you know, the ingredients in the toilet spray? Because it does have witch hazel and the same essential oil blend and other things. So we said, absolutely not. It is, <laughs> it is not going to, the toilet spray will not replace the hand sanitizer or hand gel. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was really good timing. Nice. And one of the things that I think has been a positive to come out of all of this is how quickly people are moving and innovating and, and going to market. Um, I can speak for our team. It's been great to see what's happened and then seeing so many of our customers and how they've been able to like pivot or change their businesses so fast. And so Kenton in the chat asked everybody to introduce themselves and share what company they're with. So I guess before we keep going, um, Sarah, Mark, Matt, you want to jump in and share who you are and, and your company? Sure. Um, so my name is Matt DiCapio. I work at Bowie USA. We're a CPG company focused on primarily personal hygiene items, including uh, body scrubbers, uh, a proprietary toothbrush, and a face scrubber that we launched last year. My name is uh, Mark Fontanetta. I'm the logistics manager with Backblade, and we are a men's uh, do-it-yourself uh, men's shaver for your back and other parts of your body. Sarah, you want to share a little bit more on Piper Y? Uh, yeah, so Piper Y is an activated charcoal uh, natural deodorant, and we also have several daily, daily essentials like underarm oil, the toilet spray that I mentioned. We've been around for several years, and we sell predominantly e-commerce, Amazon, and several retailers, including Whole Foods. Great. And, and I definitely have some wholesale and B2B questions for you. Mark, uh, first for everybody, wait, I'm hearing some weird feedback. Uh, so with Backblade, if anybody has not heard of Backblade, I suggest going on YouTube and elsewhere. They have some of the best commercials out there. The stuff that they launched around their Kickstarter several years ago to other ways that they've gone to market. It's definitely a product you can get fun and creative with. So I, I highly suggest that. And so here we actually, I'll start with a question from an attendee here or listener from Paul. And this is around supply chain before you get it to your fulfillment provider. And Mark, I think you can help a lot here. So. Paul asks, he's running an, emergent, uh, an emerging D2C beauty brand that launched in August. And fortunately for them, their sales have continued to grow throughout COVID-19, but their primary concern has been supply chain disruption. So their China factory is back online and they're pre preparing to issue a new PO to restock inventory. But they've heard talk of people experiencing a 3 to 4x increase in air freight. So, Mark, anything that you can share there on things that you've seen in China? Because I believe you guys manufacture in China. We do. Um, and we did also see the three times increase with some air freight. We recently had to do a shipment that way. And uh, we just, for one aspect, lessened what we brought in. We just couldn't bring everything that we wanted to in at that time. We are seeing with our manufacturer that the times are getting better, getting it to the manufacturer, to the port is getting better, but it, sometimes it is sitting at the port just because the boats just aren't there in China to uh, get the product to overseas, to get, to get the product to us. So I've done two shipments um, probably since everything started. Each one has gotten better with the time from the time I've set it up to get it shipped out and picked up to the time that it's sailed. So that it is getting better. And do you typically utilize air or just to get products here much faster, you guys decided to utilize air? Right. We just, in this situation, we just decided to use air. We've done it in the past 
so that's how I know that the the space is costly. It's costly right now, just for the fact that our freight forwarder usually would have pre space space pre-booked on flights coming out of Hong Kong and the flights just start coming out of Hong Kong. So it's just trying to get on flights. Uh, you know, we're in Illinois. We heard the other day that our governor brought in some secret flights that nobody knew about of product from China. So it's one of those things that if you can wait, I would definitely suggest it. If not, then just understand that it's, it, it is costly right now. Uh, and by the way, I like the Bulls jersey in the background. I think uh, <laughs> all of our sports deprived people are Bulls <laughs> documentary. And then Matt, what about you guys? Where do you guys manufacture and how have you guys been able to weather this? Sure. So we've been luckier than most because, especially throughout this crisis, because we're domestic suppliers. So our manufacturing is actually down south in Louisiana. And because our factory is actually a supplier of medical devices, they're considered essential. So they're at full capacity. So we've had no issues from a demand side. Obviously, you know, they're prioritizing certain work for the medical devices. But as far as, you know, our situation with inventory, everything's fairly fluid at this point. So we've been luckier. Have you seen some delay? I've got a couple of questions there. So have you seen some delay because they're prioritizing the essentials or has that not really impacted you guys? We were just actually in a pretty decent inventory position where we were probably a little bit long actually prior to all this happening. So, you know, obviously it wasn't something we planned and we were actually trying to figure out a sell through solution for it. So we were actually overstocked and kind of running through that now. And since our sales have maintained, we're actually going to be depleted um, prior to the next arrival of, you know, of goods. And, And since you are working with a stateside manufacturer, have you heard anything Mm -hmm. from them? Have they seen the demand in people? approaching them for different manufacturing needs or that could possibly cause a delay or what have you guys seen that yeah they're not taking on any new new projects at this time i think it's to their benefit to focus on the customers they currently have and they've stated as much obviously we don't want our service levels to drop off either so that's another consideration in the sense that they're at 100 percent capacity there's not much more capacity to be able to you know to find uh to take on new business interesting and then to go more on like the, the marketing and the demand side. So Sarah, we'll, we'll start with you. Uh, you. You guys came out with your hand gel. So of course, that's a new product. But what kind of... Have you, have you seen different buying behavior changes or an uptick in the way that people purchase? Yeah, we've had... Uh, so we have three distribution channels. We have Amazon, Shopify, retail. We actually had disruption in two of our three channels because one of our largest retail partners was experiencing store closures across the country. And so that really significantly impacted them. And then Amazon, Amazon was for the first couple of weeks, we were experiencing a surge in demand. There was a lot of panic buying, a lot of people stocking up on even deodorant and um, probably anticipating the delays in shipping. And then once um, some Amazon warehouses were experiencing either the virus outbreak in certain locations, or they were just experiencing um, kind of a shift in their workflow and, you know, putting in different social distancing and other protocol. Shipping times have been extended between six and eight weeks for a lot of products, depending on the location they're coming from. So there you're saying on Amazon. On Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. So it really kind of made us focus more on e-commerce because that's the one channel for us that hasn't been disrupted. And that's the channel where, you know, we're consistently in stock. 
And so from that perspective, I think it's really just shifted where the demand is coming from. And we also saw a couple of our smaller retail partners that e-commerce shops, they were experiencing experiencing a surge in demand because if one customer is or if customers are looking on Amazon, they can't get it within two days, they're they're Googling other areas they can purchase the product. So it's really just shifted behavior across different channels based on where shipping is late and where it's not the way. Has Amazon making changes, which I think were for the better of everybody with prioritizing essentials, but has that caused you to change your view of Amazon as a channel, both in the short term and the long term? I think in the long term, it hasn't really changed because deodorant is a category that many customers prefer to purchase through Amazon, um, through Amazon Prime. And the issue, though, in the short term is we've kind of been going back and forth between fulfilled by merchant and FBA. And so it's really just keeping our eyes on all the changes. And sometimes it's hour by hour, something could happen. We get a notification from Amazon and we cancel our shipment going in. I want to get stuff in receiving. So it's really just in the short term, we just kind of have to keep our eyes on it and, and adapt as quickly as possible. But long term, it really hasn't changed much. Okay. And, and what about you, Mark? And but both in regards to Amazon and the sales channel, but also... I know you guys sell a, a handful of different bundle packages. Have you seen changes in how people buy there? Not so much in the bundle package. I think we've run into some of the same issues that um, was previously mentioned. You know, lockdown started, and then you know we saw a rise in business. I happened to be up late on Sunday night and noticed that all of our product had not had the Prime badge on it anymore, and was in the process of shipping a bunch of inventory to Amazon with the thinking of, well, Amazon's still open, so we're gonna make, you know, we're gonna put this product there. But using ShipBob, we were able to transition from the FBA listings to the FBM listings right away because of the delivery times were obviously we're able to show shorter delivery times at the time than what Amazon was showing on all of our products. So that, you know, we were able to transition that business kind of right over where it did fall off a little bit because the people just, if they don't see Prime, they're just not going to order it. I feel that we've been fortunate enough over time. We got our main item back on Prime a couple of weeks ago. And then the flick of the switch the other day, everything went to Prime for us in our category and our listings. But we're keeping both of them open because we just want to make sure, like you said, Amazon could change at any time. And we just want, we don't want that loss of people seeing the listing not there or seeing it delivered a month out from now. And when Prime was taken away, what kind of impact did that have for you all on both clickings to your listing page and then the conversion? I don't have the exact numbers on it. I think it was that people still could see that they were going to get it quicker than the Amazon listing. So they were ordering it. But I don't know the exact number of how many you know how many impressions were lower than what we were we had had previously. Great, and then Matt, I've got a question for you. But real quick, there's a question from a different Matt in the question section. Do we offer refrigerated storage, and is that extra? We do not have refrigerated. We do have temp control, and temp control is not extra. And then Nick, I see you welcoming Ethan back into the chat. So Ethan was. Uh, Brave enough to come on stage last week. So again, we welcome anybody to come back on stage this week. Ethan, the invite still stands for you as well. 
And then Matt, where, what is the mix and channels that you guys primarily sell in? And, and similarly, I'd, I'd love to hear if, if you have seen a shift in the products that people purchase. We haven't touched too much on becoming omni-channel just yet, just because of resources. And we have a hard enough time uh, supporting our own store from a supplies perspective. So we're primarily on Shopify and we do some business with Urban Outfitters and everything that was uh, tangential to that in terms of retail is actually on hold for now. We had a couple of opportunities with some uh, subscription boxes, but that's uh, those programs are getting kicked down the road until this passes. But as far as Amazon, we've tried them in the past, um, obviously for the number of reasons why there's, you know, people choose not to. I mean, that was essentially what we can cite as reasons to leave. So we're primarily uh, D2C of 90% of our businesses there. We have some business and tests with Urban Outfitters. As far as our products, um, every category is performing fairly well, and it's actually consistent prior to, to this uh, crisis. And you know, basically, we do see some small lifts. So there's been no uh, drop-off in demand. And actually, in some days, you know, that's actually increased. So I know with, especially with coronavirus, something that we've focused on even more than before, uh, and I know a lot of brands are, is, is really focusing on that, that customer experience, that customer support, talking to your customers more, understanding how you can support them through this time. So some questions that came in earlier this week. So one from Dorla, what's the best way to incorporate customer support overall and with shipping? And then similarly from Armand, how is everyone handling their customer service needs at this time? So really opening this up to any three of you that, that want to jump in. Uh, have you seen any changes and, and how are you approaching this? So we've been uh, proactive with our communication, whether it's through email or, um, you know, obviously on Instagram and things like that. So we've been kind of proactive in communicating all the changes, including the things that are happening at ShipBob. So when you prompt us with your notifications, we kind of communicate that to our customers as well. Uh, yeah, I, same thing. You know, every time we get notifications from ShipBob, we pass that on to our customers and we keep them informed. We also have our auto confirmation email updated to just a short message about COVID and how our fulfillment partners are handling it, how our channels are doing. Because I know we have a lot of customers that also purchase between channels and um, so that kind of impacts their purchases. So a lot of it's coming down to communication through email, social, social media, even on our website as much as we can. Nice. And with these updates, have you all seen like an engagement in people replying maybe more so than normal? Or do you think they're just thankful that you're being proactive with this information? How have you seen that conversation that, uh, going? There has been a lot of engagement um, and a lot of proactive questions. People who maybe hadn't seen it on social emailing and even before the place in order, FYI, just want to know if there's shipping delays. It's okay if there is, but a lot of proactive customers. And even as a consumer, I do the same thing now in email. Anytime I'm placing an order online, I ask them, what's the shipping delay? And, and is there anything going on at the fulfillment center that we should know about? Um, so I think it's pretty much most consumers expect it. Yeah, I think uh, meeting those ec- expectations. And I'm just going to echo exactly what Sarah said, You know, just being proactive with the communication. Obviously, if there's any notifications from you, we re- relay that in almost real time. So. Yeah, and, you know, we're doing the same thing here at Backblade. You know, as a consumer myself, I've recently ordered some stuff online and two weeks I'm still waiting on it and didn't hear anything from this company. And they're a pretty large company. So it was kind of interesting that it took them that long to realize that they weren't going to be able to hit the, the shipping times or even ship out product. So I think, you know, one thing that we're doing is, is we're being very understanding of customers. If they need to, 
cancel something, return it or anything like that, you know, not really giving people that, I guess you could say a hard time with it or anything like that. I think it's just, it's going to come back to be better for us after everything's over because they'll return as a customer. Glad you brought up returns. That segues us into another question I wanted to bring up. So I know your companies all have very healthy, I'd say, return percentages, meaning that they're they're lower than than many, even though I'm sure you all would like that to be zero. <laughs> uh, so question from Richard. To help us with our projections on a new e-commerce venture, what's a realistic percentage of sales per order attributed to returns? And how is this split between size changes and refund returns? So Again, I know it d- depends on every single business. Like apparel is very different than some of yours, but anything you want to add there from a return perspective? I think uh, for us, our returns off of our direct to consumer customers who are buying directly off our website are very minimum because they're people who are coming to our website and you know are pretty much know what they want. On the Amazon side, it's completely different. So that's kind of how I would see it. So yeah, I, I like I said, our direct our different. What do you mean? Higher return I, rate or the, yeah, the return rate on Amazon is much higher than somebody's buying it directly off of our website because that person is either already bought into the product or they've done enough research that they want to buy it directly from from the website instead of maybe seeing something on Amazon or something along those lines, and just so many. People just use the Amazon return system just freely. It's just unfortunately their way it is. Mark, do you, do you think it's also from just like a, because Amazon's more, I mean, it's a discovery platform too at the end of the day. Do you think it's because people can fully understand your brand on your website? And because, I mean, yes. I'm not sure if you're leveraging like EBC content or anything like that to help out with it, but do you think that's, that plays into a factor? Yeah. We are. We're able to tell more of a story in, uh, on the website than compared to, to Amazon. Yeah, I would, I would think like, it's definitely like a discovery. Because I, I see that you guys do leverage uh, EBC content, which is great. Because I think that's a, you know, definitely need to do that as a brand on Amazon. But I think for your product in particular, it would make sense. Um, right. You know, lower returns right through your website too. Yeah. Yeah, as far as returns go for us, I mean, we haven't seen an uptick because of this, but uh, it's something we're always, you know, trying to address. And actually, I just had an, uh, a conversation with our account rep at ShipBob this week regarding, you know, potentially doing a deeper dive, uh, more so related to how we can actually categorize what the returns are actually about and get context there. Obviously, if it's just a defective product, if the customer's returning because they're not satisfied, um, I'd like to have those reasons, you know, if we can get that those metrics in, I mean, that would be really helpful. Nice. And... Fortunately, we just revamped our entire returns process. So hopefully that goes well for all of you. So here's a question for Sarah from Lauren in the chat. Do you see premium hand sanitizer staying popular item down the road? And are people using it as an add-on? Yeah, uh, people are definitely purchasing it, purchasing it with the deodorant. And I see this being a static product because it's something that we had planned a while ago to add into our product assortment. Again, we did not expect to make it happen as fast as we did. But looking at some of the larger competitors, like some of these sort of legacy naturals brands, they tend to always have the body wash, the hand sanitizers, or hand gels, and deodorant, and really just everyday staples. So it's something that makes a lot of sense for our brand. And we're really happy with the formula. We'd like to innovate with it and launch you know, different scents, different sizes. I think the only change we'll make right now is we're 
because of the supply constraints, we've only been able to get a one ounce bottle. And a lot of suppliers are marking up the prices of that. Um, they're pretty much gone in the US. We've even looked to China and shipping times, as you have mentioned, it's either delayed or uh, you experience incredibly high air freight costs. So in the future, we definitely want to launch something closer to an eight ounce, 16 ounce, something that's family friendly or um, something that can be used in an office setting or a group setting. But that's pretty much the only change that we'll Awesome. And then here's a question from Kenton. And Mark, you can probably best answer this. And, and Sarah, I'm not sure if you guys manufacture everything over in China or if it's state that as well. No, we don't manufacture in China. Okay. So from Kenton, with a new focus on possible trade, trade restrictions and perceived problems on sourcing products in China, are you concerned enough to look at domestic manufacturing? And if so, how will you handle those increased costs? To be honest, it's not something that we've really thought of recently. I think things just right now, it, it, you can, they could just change at any time. Somebody says something and they're going to, you know, they could close something up. Our, we have a very, very, very good relationship with our manufacturer in China. So if something changes or is going to be coming up, he pretty much lets us know. And the same thing in regards to the freight forwarding company that we use, they give us pretty much right now, it's almost like a daily update in regards to how things are changing for ocean freight and air freight. So by having those two things, we're you know feeling pretty comfortable that we'll be able to continue to get our product. Nice. And, and for context, how long have you been working with this specific manufacturer? From the beginning. He's been our manufacturer from the beginning of um, our product and the freight forwarder company. We've had that relationship with them for about two and a half years right now. And they're just really on top of the ball with everything, with what's okay. going on. I mean, I think that this is really shedding light on a lot of things that are obvious, but relationships are obviously important, yes. important. And during times like this, you really see who's there to support your business and get you through this. So it's, it's great, yep. great to hear. A question for Matt from with, with your guys' product, which, which could be considered essential as well. And we've seen personal care as a, as a vertical really grow through all of this. From a go-to-market perspective, how have you approached your marketing messaging? I know that that's a question many people have, which is, hey, a lot of people are going through some tough times, but we still need to keep our businesses afloat. So how have you, if you have at all, changed change your marketing messaging and also your channel mix and how you're going to consume? Obviously, there's a, a emphasis on personal care and hygiene, and we're trying to subtly kind of focus our marketing efforts towards that without actually hitting people over the head. You know, basically what we're trying to say with our products. Obviously, you have to be careful because this is, uh, you know, with a virus, it's not the same thing as what, what our product actually kills. So it's a totally different thing. So we're trying to stay away from that because obviously we want to not, not mislead our customers. So the messaging has actually, you know, we've been, like I said, just communicating all the things we're doing. But as far as, you know, trying to have major marketing changes in terms of strategy, we're not doing that. Any brands that you've seen that have just stood out to you of doing a job during this? Yeah, there's a few, but I can't, uh, you know, I've actually received a few emails and I think what they're doing is, uh, is, is great. And, uh, you know, we've let them take the lead. Uh-huh. Here's a question from longtime listener Nick. So, Sarah, as a founder, what keeps you up at night and how are you handling everything through all this? <laughs> what keeps me up at night? 
I mean, being a founder, and I mean, like, you started the business. I think the first concoction you guys were making in like your kitchen. Yeah. Uh, now um, it's much larger business. And so, and with coronavirus, that's even additional pressure. And there's a lot of people that depend on you all. So yeah. uh, here, we'll, we'll, get, we'll go deep for a minute. Well, uh, well, I'm laughing because it's like everything keeps me up at night at this point. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, we, we've been through so many different phases. We've been through the too much demand and not enough supply phase after we had media exposure. We've been through competitors copying our formula. We've kind of weathered a lot. I think right now, the thing that's really keeping me up at night is um, because now we're going into such an uncharted territory, I think what is the future of our business going to look like? You know, we had so many plans for sustainability. So we're upgrading our packaging and a few things on our supply chain that we've been working on for several months and um, including a recycling upcycling program. And right now, I'm just, I think what I'm more focused on is how do I have to change everything that we've thought up until this point, all the plans that we had in place for the past few months, is all of that going to change? Um, and what is that going to look like? And also the fundraising landscape, that's always a stressful um, conversation for any founder, especially now with a lot of investors getting skittish about the market and either holding off on investing or changing sort of their investment criteria to um, just be much more cautious about where they deploy capital. So I think it's really just the uncertainty. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of my team for adapting so quickly and like we've been in quarantine now for four weeks because we're based in New York. So things things got pretty bad quickly. And yeah, I'm proud of, you know, everyone stayed really creative. We've, like I said, we've been able to launch this product really quickly. We've had content coming out about hygiene and surviving the quarantine, working from home. We've had all kinds of creative content coming out and a lot of communication with customers. So yeah, it's stressful, but I, I think there's, you know, we're all experiencing the same thing. And, and it, it probably helps too. You'll have the diversity in, in the channel mix as well. So if you were solely in you know wholesale and some of your wholesale partners get completely wiped out, uh, but then you have the direct consumer channel, and then obviously with Amazon, you know they can make any changes they want at any time, especially during something like this. And so I'm sure that the mix the mix of channels is helped here as well. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I definitely worry about some of our retail partners. How long is it going to take for them to bounce back from this? Uh, when are they going to open their stores? What's going to happen to their employees? So we're definitely fortunate that we have the diversity in our channels. But yeah, it's been—it's just a lot of balancing. Like every hour, something will change, and we get new information. And we're like, okay, let's focus resources on this other channel, or let's change what we're doing for the next. Like every, even with our digital advertising strategy, I say day by day, like change the advertising message. Literally day by day. Really, <laughs> I'm curious too. Going to have you have you reallocated to different channels too? Like, I'm not sure with like what your mix is, but have you taken ad spend from maybe Google and push it more towards Instagram or something like that in recent like weeks? I guess you could say because I'm just this is just curious. Like, um, I know a lot of brands are starting to do stuff like that, but yeah, well, overall ad spend is down, so our performance has been increasing. Less competition. Pinterest, we've never advertised on Pinterest, but we've seen a huge spike in our Pinterest activity. Not sure what that was pretty to, but yeah, it's it's been a lot of it's really the messaging because we had ads planned weeks ago and we really need to adapt to the current environment. A lot of it's the creative of the messaging. Um, Mark, I know you guys sell across a handful of channels and, and 
B2B or wholesale, how have you seen maybe terms with your different partners change? And have you found any opportunity to help extend your guys' runway economically during all of this as well? We haven't seen really any terms change. I think for us as a company, because we had a timeline of some new stuff that's going to be coming out this year, some of that's been put on hold and everything like that, and some other projects that we you know stopped probably like a lot of companies, it's actually freed up a little bit of time for us to look at other parts of our business to see, can we streamline some of that business and make it better in regards to like our customer service interaction? Can we uh, look at that in a way that we're lessening the emails either back and forth from the initial contact with the customer to the problem is resolved? So that's definitely something that we're looking at right now. Here's a question from Jason. Uh, It says for Sarah, and I believe this pertains to you too, Mark, how does Ship integrate with your FBM platform? Seamlessly. And uh, <laughs> okay, so for, uh, sorry, I'll go first. For for us, we've had I'll call it double SKUs created on Amazon for a while. We have our FBA listing SKUs, and then we have our FBM SKUs. And ninety nine point nine percent of the time, the FBM SKUs are unlisted. So when this all occurred on like the fifteenth and sixteenth of March we were able to just turn on the FBA listings and we had everything already set up in, in ShipUp. So it's a, it's a seamless integration, um, even from the first time we did it. So that helped us, like I said earlier, not see really a huge drop in people being able to place orders on, on Amazon to where the product was either unavailable or it was you know, a, a, month, a month out for delivery. And Sarah, anything to add there on ShipUp plus FBA? Well, ship off both ears, but we only handle our Shopify. <laughs> so we we do have um, we have another fulfillment center for B two B. So they were handling Amazon, so we um, switched on. So we have basically we have our inventory that we set aside for Amazon, and we have inventory that we set aside for Amazon. But I I don't think this is you know hopefully it's more short term because as we were discussing when it doesn't have the prime tag or if it doesn't have two-day shipping attached to it, yeah, we definitely saw a huge sales drop off. And at this point, we're kind of, we're thinking uh, we either just take a chance, we send into FBA, and if something happens and our our inventory gets stranded, then we manage that. But yeah, I wouldn't say it's been seamless. It's just been uh, lower volume. We don't need to close our ears. We can... <laughs> everything like with Mark, or if sometimes people need different services or solution providers to other things, go for yep. it. So, here's a question from Azim, which Carolyn kindly pointed out that I did not ask yet. So thank you, Carolyn. Okay, so from Azim, what freight forward is freight forwarders do you use and recommend? We use CH Robinson. They're one of the largest in the world. One of the reasons that we do use them is, is that it's um, pretty seamless on our end. They handle a lot of it. It's pretty much we send them the information that the order is ready to get picked up at our by our manufacturer, and um, they pretty much handle it all the way. We're able to see it on their dashboard where it is on the boat and everything like that. And um, 
they've just been a really good partner with ours and we've built that relationship with them. So that's who we use. I know there's a lot of other ones out there. Obviously, people have to look at the cost of it. We look at the cost of it as what service they provide to us. And Matt and Sarah, anything else you want to throw in there? Well, we we let our factory manage our... We don't even sit, uh, send LTLs or TLs domestically. It's basically all parcel, which obviously ShipBob knows. So until we get to that point, we're not really... Uh, we don't currently work with any freight forwarders. But in my past life, we did have a, I did have a good relationship with expediters. But I, I'm sure that's kind of, you know, aside from the count rep, um, they had definitely have the infrastructure in place. Nice. And then a question from James. Maybe Mark can answer this because I think you kind of already have already. Can ShipBob fulfill Amazon fulfilled by merchant orders? And is the cost, does it compete with Amazon FBA? Yes, they can fulfill FBM orders. Unfortunately, the fulfillment price on Amazon is really hard to compete with on any aspect from, I think, any uh, 3PL, any shipper. So um, it's just one of those things that um, in a situation like this, we realize that it's just an, it's an incurred cost to continue to get orders. Thank you. And then here's a question from Ethan, who I mentioned uh, came on last week. Looks like he's going to duck out this time. For Sarah, are you seeing panic buying drive a lift in revenue or the impacts to brick and mortar channels offsetting other channels? Yeah, our e-commerce, because that's the most fully functional right now, we have seen it's been able to carry us. It's been able to replace a lot of the business that was lost on the physical retail side. Um, and same thing with some of the Amazon disruption. So we've been fortunate in that aspect. And the panic buying, I think, was more on Amazon during the first two weeks before this disruptions. And I, I guess maybe consumers had a sense that something was going to go awry because you start to see um, you know, Amazon, with the Amazon Fresh, they weren't taking on new customers and there's little hints here and there that they were becoming overwhelmed. So maybe um, a lot of customers want to pop up in the beginning of the outbreak. So question back, I want to go back to the market side. So each of you have mentioned this to an extent on seeing, I think the competition is less on platforms such as Facebook and Instagram. Has it been noticeable on which of your competitors have completely cut their costs? Because a lot of the agencies that I stop talk to on a consistent basis, I mean, that's their business is to, you know, they're mostly in marketing agencies. And so they're seeing a lot of growth and, and a strong ROI. And so I'm just curious on if it's very apparent on who's pulling back the reins and who's maybe doubling their spend to take advantage of them. That's a great question. Uh, we haven't actually explored that much, but it does make sense that in certain verticals, uh, obviously, depending on what categories that you're servicing, that you'll see an increase, or excuse me, a decrease in demand, or excuse me, uh, advertisement for certain brands. In our vertical, it seems like everybody's prospering for the most part. So that's what we've seen. But once again, it's all category dependent. And then this is a, a, just a, another broad question to whoever wants to jump in here. So I think what's been interesting also is the way that people need to not just shift their message, but they're creative. And I don't know if any of you have rolled this out um, or if you've seen others that you think have done a great job, but have any of you utilized you know, maybe user-generated content or other types of video to take advantage of something like this very quickly? Yeah, I can jump in there. I've been seeing a lot of brands doing live 
and they're doing uh, tutorials, they're doing um, group meditation, Q&A, similar to this. And from the brands that I've in our network that have been doing that, uh, some of them have been doing it every day, and they said their engagement has been skyrocketing. A lot of people are, you know, the customers are responding to that. They're responding to that face-to-face interaction and directly with their brands. We've always used user-generated content, and we also, to kind of track our sustainability project, we kind of launched this little internal podcast. So that's something that we've been focusing on, um, not as much on live, but yeah, we, we've always used user-generated content, and it's been increasing recently. Mark, what about you guys? You guys have rolled out some of the most interesting content over the years. It's a little different now that you probably can't do true production as you have in the past, but anything in the pipeline? We were working on some things. Um, some stuff got put on pause and everything like that right now. I think like a lot of companies, it's let's kind of weather the storm with uh, what we have and everything like that. And then when we get on the other side of this, um, kind of start get back going and everything. Nice. So here, here's another question that came in from Renika. It says, how do you save money on shipping heavy items? So I'll open up with this and then hand it off to everybody else because I believe everybody, Sarah, Mark, and Matt, everything is pretty lightweight. I would assume almost everything's under a pound. Mark, maybe some of yours are a little bit heavier. Yeah. Um, the number one uh, suggestion I have there, of course, that's the value of... Oh, here you go. You guys hear that noise in the background? <laughs> I'll give a quick story. Um, uh, during coronavirus I got a slob leak in my house so my entire first floor got gutted and then a roof leak and then our balcony started to leak and I had three kids under six um, and so now you hear <laughs> back to work <laughs> all things go it's like Matt was like I can join you guys but I shoot my head so I look like I can't <laughs> yeah. You like your buzz, you look awesome. Um, yeah. Another person we were talking to claimed that they were like dyeing their hair blue or something. So, again, everything goes. No, no rules. Anyways, back to the heavyweight stuff. Just being closer to the end consumer. We have a, a great case study, I think, from My Calm Blanket. They sell weighted blankets. Things are 15 to 25 pounds plus their own packaging. It gets pretty, pretty heavy. And so they save 50 to 75% of their their standard shipping costs. They were shipping everything from the East Coast and now they're in, I think, four or five of our fulfillment centers. And that's how they're able to provide two-day very cost-effectively. So again, that's where the distributed inventory model really comes to shine. But I don't know if anybody else here wants to jump in and things that they've experienced personally. Yeah, our products aren't very heavy. So everything falls under 10 ounces for the most part. So I can't really speak to you know shipments on heavier items. For us, when people start buying, you know, if they buy a bundle or they start buying various products, we can get over, you know, a pound to two pounds. So we've actually, you know, you got Shabab, my account manager has helped me do some studies and things like that, where how can we get everything to like zone four and below is kind of like my goal in life. I hate seeing zone five. Um, I really even hate, hate seeing zone four. So we've actually, with what's going on, we've actually, we were in four warehouses since March. We've added three more warehouses. So um, I am running out of warehouses. You guys got to open up some more for me to, to put inventory in. Uh, <laughs> nine now, so I don't know. 
we'll be up to 12, I think, by the end of the quarter. So that sounds good. Um, so, you know, and I, you know, and like in regards to her question, how to, you know, if it's a heavy item and everything like that, that's, you know, obviously one of the ways to lessen cost is, you know, where, sh- what warehouse it's shipping on to, to where it's going to is definitely, I think the one key thing you, you can look at, cause we're, I'm always playing around with, how do I get it under a pound? Can we get it under a pound and things like that? And sometimes it's, it's just, it's just really hard to do or even looking at what service we're offering. We throw that around a lot. Should we use the service we're using with the carrier? Should we go to a different carrier? Point with the packaging too. I know that we've worked with some customers that they want to come up with this very intricate packaging, which now is going to have kidding costs where they could probably simplify that and get 99% of the customer experience with something uh, much simpler. And so that will reduce their costs. And also maybe by simplifying it, it will get their products under a pound or under some type of weight threshold, which will also save them a lot of money. So that's definitely something to, to think about as well. Here's another question from Marta. And then I've got a final question for everybody. Oftentimes people chime in with some other questions at the bell. So feel free to do that. Oh, and by the way, Jason and Monica, thanks for the kind words, but I'm sure Nick will troll me because he thinks that that's his cool job and then everything else is second. So question from Marta. I haven't launched my brand yet, but I'm hoping to ship a ship off from day one, even if our volumes will be small beginning. Why are there still founders who go to the post office with their packages which need to have enough volume to start working with fulfillment partners? And when did you start using ShipBob? So quite a few questions there. I know we worked, started working with most of you pretty early in, in your journeys. So uh, we'd, we'd love to hear everything here in your words. Why are there still founders who are going to the post office with their package? My personal opinion is, is that they really need to value their time differently um, would be my, my answer to that is are they spending their time doing what's going to make their, their brand and their business grow? Why we started using ShipBob? We had done a Kickstarter and a Indiegogo campaign and doing the research, um, we were put in the direction of ShipBob here locally in Chicago. And um, I think that's been almost, I don't know, four years now. I can't even remember three or four years ago. Um, it's a relationship and a partnership that's grown together. That's awesome. Um, Sarah, Matt, anything you, uh, you want to add in there? Yeah, it could be order value. You know, if you can handle it in Shopify, that you can get decent rates for shipping off the Shopify platform. And I'm assuming the other platforms as well. So you can do it up until a certain size to limit costs, obviously. So there's no pick and pack fees potentially. Yeah, that's true. We, we didn't pay pick and pack fees. Our viewer labor in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, we used this thing called shipping easy because our volume is so small. We were crafting all of our products for a couple of years and it was, I mean, it wasn't. I wouldn't say small enough that it didn't take our time with other parts of the business, but it was, we felt that it was too small for a fulfillment center. And then after getting the media exposure, that's when this was, yeah, three years ago, we turned to ship off and we tried a couple of fulfillment centers locally. So there's also like that period of testing out places, seeing what would work, seeing what would be a good partner. And it was surprisingly difficult to find a good e-commerce a specific uh, fulfillment center. We found a lot that would focus on B2B, but we, at least in our network, just didn't have a ton that focused on 
Nice. So and I see in the chat, Jen says hi. So Jen's uh, one of our longer tenured ship bobbers, merchant success manager with with Mark. I don't know if she if she works with you, Sarah. Yeah. Um, yes, there we go. There as well. Everybody knows Jen. So this is the next show, which which is uh, probably more fun anyways. So Jen, we're gonna pull you up on stage soon too. Um, so my, my last question. You should is, uh, you know, we can run through each of you, uh, Sarah, Mark, Matt, what is uh, your number one piece of advice for e-commerce operators and owners during this time? I mean, for us, I mean, I can only speak for us, but right now, you know, we're just trying to ride this out, but we've, you know, had internal conversations about how, how we should prepare ourselves. So when this is over, we can hit the ground running on all the initiatives that we had in place prior to this happening. I think, uh, you know, think conversations that we've had here or if we, you know, talking things through is really talk them through, you know, say, hey, okay, we're going to do this right away or say we're going to do it now. And then sometimes, you know, you got to mull it over, sit down at 24, 48 hours to make sure that it is the right decision of what you for what you want to do right now. And, you know, like Matt said is, is that. We're also looking at things to, okay, when this is over, how do we restart some of those projects? Can they be started right away? Do we have to start from the beginning or can we just pick up kind of where we left off to get them going hopefully in a month or two here? Yeah, I would say use this time to see what it's, what is this crisis telling you about your infrastructure? So where are those, where are those parts of your company that you can really dig into and pivot because we have, you know, we don't have all the distractions of travel. We are stuck inside for the most part. And it's, it's a good time to like really take a step back and say, okay, this is the time that I'm going to focus on my business plan. This is the time I'm going to focus on what isn't working and enhancing what is working. And we've, we've had a lot of time to do that. And especially being on the channel as we are, um, it's shown us a lot of faults actually in our business plan and areas that we can really focus on. Um, like I said, we, we decided to pivot more, more to focus on e-com than we have in the past. Yeah, so really seeing it as an opportunity not, and not so much as a crisis um, because at some point we won't get back to normal, but at some point hopefully we'll make it through and, and yeah, we can continue on with what is working. Great. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end this. Sarah, Mark, Matt, really appreciate your time. Everybody who joined us today, I know that there's a lot going on. There's a lot of other places you can spend your time. I hope this is extremely valuable. I know I always learn a ton from these. I feel like I'm the biggest winner in these because I get to hear all from, from you all. So thanks again. If anybody has questions, feel free to email me, uh, carmstrong at shipbob.com. And it, what, what looks like the most high demand thing in the comments is you get to come and work with Jen once you start shipping with her. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be according to you. Thank you, everybody. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for hosting. Bye. Bye. Bye.